it's very good of you all to come. It's very good of Bronwyn to come. It's actually been one of my ambitions in life to join the list of people that Bronwyn has interviewed after Vladimir Putin and Robert Maxwell. So finally I get there. We're now in the world of Brexit and Donald Trump. And the decision to invade Iraq was taken 13 and a half years ago. And some of you looking around this room were probably not even 10 years old when it was taken. So is this just a bit of ancient history that I'm talking about? Or is there still something that we need to learn from it? Was there any point to having the seven-year Chilcot inquiry that produced a report of 2.6 million words, uh, which, for those of you studying for PhDs, is the equivalent of 26 history PhD theses written by only four people. Um, in my title, uh, I've said the lessons for strategy. Now, I apologize for using the word strategy because I'm really not qualified uh, to do this. I'm not a political scientist. I was just a humble practitioner. And really, the person you should have asked this evening is Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, who sat with me in the inquiry and has written a masterly book on strategy, The History of Strategy, over some 750 pages. Uh, Friedman, in that book, wrote that strategy remains the best word we have for expressing attempts to think about actions in advance in the light of our goals and our capacities. So what was the strategic goal in the Iraq conflict? The immediate objective was to neutralize the potential threat of Saddam Hussein's regime by ensuring that he was disarmed and brought into compliance with UN Security Council resolutions. <coughs> but the longer-term strategic goal was one which was formulated various times by the governments concerned, but in its fullest form was proclaimed at the summit of the United States, the UK, Spain and Portugal four days before the war began on the 16th of March 2003, the Azores Summit. And this came out with something called the Vision for Iraq and the Iraqi People. And I'll just quote a bit from it. A new Iraq at peace with itself and its neighbours, lifted from insecurity and tyranny. All the Iraqi people should enjoy freedom, prosperity and equality in a united country. We will support the Iraqi people's aspirations for a representative government that upholds human rights and the rule of law as cornerstones of democracy. All Iraqis should share the wealth generated by their national economy. And there was also a pledge in the vision to help with the reconstruction of Iraq. Well, the United States and the UK and their coalition uh, achieved the first objective but arguably they didn't need to go to war in order to do so. But they quite clearly, if you look at Iraq today, uh, they self-evidently failed to achieve the strategic goal. I haven't got time to go into all the lessons of the uh, inquiry as to why things went wrong, but I'm going to just pick on four of the, to me, strategic lessons of this uh, conflict. My first one is that in a situation like this, the threat assessment is critical. A number of you will be familiar with Sun Tzu's The Art of War, written in the 5th century BC. I'm not, but of course I've cheated by reading Laurie Friedman on the subject. 
and Sun Tzu stressed the importance of foreknowledge, which could not, and I quote, be elicited from spirits, nor from gods, nor by analogy with past events, nor from calculations. It must be obtained from men who know the enemy situation. Well, on the subject of foreknowledge, uh, the Americans had a presidential commission of inquiry into what went wrong with their intelligence on Iraq, which came up with the following statement, the US intelligence community was dead wrong in almost all of its pre-war judgments about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. In the uh, Chilcot report, we use slightly more judicious language to say effectively the same thing. We talked of failings in the UK's pre-conflict collection, validation, analysis, and presentation of intelligence on Iraq's WMD. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of that because I could spend two hours doing so, and they're all written out in the report if you're interested. But the basic point is that the United Kingdom and the USA, to come back to Sun Tzu, did not have enough people who knew the enemy situation. The Joint Intelligence Committee actually described the intelligence on Iraq as patchy and sporadic. And it came from a very small number of intelligence sources, and it then turned out that some of these sources had in fact been false. The intelligence assessment leaned far too heavily on past events, the events of what was known and not known ten years previously in the early 1990s. And this led to two fundamental errors in the assessment of Iraq. The first was simply that there was an ingrained belief, a construct, within the intelligence community, in this country and in the United States, they were absolutely convinced that the regime in Iraq retained chemical and biological weapons capabilities, that it was determined to enhance these capabilities, and that it was bent on developing a nuclear program and, in time, a nuclear capability, although it was known that the nuclear program had effectively been stalled for some years and indeed that a lot of it had been dismantled in the early 1990s by UN inspectors. Now this was groupthink, and it was never challenged. It was never challenged within either the UK or the United States of America. At no point in the run-up to the war did somebody say, we should reassess this, we should review the evidence, we should check our bearings. Uh, and at no point did anybody say, should we not explore the hypothesis? What if Saddam Hussein is telling the truth when he says that he no longer has weapons of mass destruction? That simply didn't happen. The second thing that went wrong was in the assessment and the presentation of the threat. And the threat is clearly different from the intelligence. Even if the intelligence had been right... Did this add up to a real and present danger, a threat from Iraq that required preemptive action? Now, up to 2001, the British government argued that the perceived threat from Saddam, which was based on the presumption that he had some WMD programs, plus his known regional ambitions, plus the fact that he had a track record of attacking neighbouring countries, he'd attacked four of his neighbours. Clearly there was at least a latent threat there, 
but they believed very firmly that this had been contained, contained by a combination of sanctions, deterrence, arms embargo, no-fly zones, troops stationed in neighbouring countries, uh, a very effective arms embargo. He'd never been able to rebuild his armed forces. And then 9-11 happened. And 9-11, as we heard from many witnesses to the inquiry, changed the calculus of risk. Tony Blair in his memoirs has described this moment. Suddenly, he wrote, the whole nature of the security threat altered from one that was low level to one that was of supreme significance. Now, the intelligence on Iraq had not changed, and nobody was arguing that Iraq was involved in the 9-11 attacks. This was looked at by both the British and the American intelligence experts, and there was no evidence uh, of a connection. But the way that the United States viewed the need to preempt possible threats had changed, and indeed, Tony Blair's own view changed at this point. So that by February of the following year, less than six months after 9-11, you had a British Prime Minister and a British Foreign Secretary publicly beginning to argue that Iraq was a threat, reversing what they'd been saying a year or two previously, and therefore that it needed to disarm or to be disarmed. And by September of that year, September of 2002, you had the government producing its dossier on Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and in his foreword to the dossier, Tony Blair wrote the following, I'm in no doubt that the threat is serious and current, that he has made progress on weapons of mass destruction, and that he has to be stopped. His military planning allows for some of the WMD to be ready within 45 minutes of an order to use them. So that was one part of the threat perception, but there was another part. There was a new dimension came into the threat perception after 9-11. And this was the fear that Saddam Hussein might provide WMD materials to international terrorist groups. Tony Blair expressed this fear very graphically when he made an extraordinarily powerful speech to the House of Commons on the 18th of March 2003 in the debate that led to the House adopting by a very large majority uh, the resolution that backed the government's um, use of force against Iraq. And in that speech, Blair said the possibility of terrorist groups in possession of weapons of mass destruction or even of a so-called dirty radiological bomb is now, in my judgment, a real and present danger, that phrase again, to Britain and its national security. And then talking of 9-11, he said, had the terrorists been able, there would have been not 3,000 innocent dead, but 30,000 or 300,000. Unless we take action against them, they will grow. That is why we should act. And then talking of Saddam's arsenal, he said, whether in the hands of his regime or in the hands of the terrorists to whom he would give his weapons, they pose a clear danger to British citizens. Now that's a very frightening hypothesis. And if you are the Prime Minister of the country and you can see these risks, you have a duty to take them very seriously. You cannot play games over this. 
But there were other people, people advising the Prime Minister, other people within the government, who were looking at the same intelligence and coming to a very different assessment of the threat. This distinction between the intelligence and the actual assessment of whether there was a real and present danger. The Joint Intelligence Committee, as I say, found no evidence of cooperation between Iraq and Al-Qaeda and no credible evidence of covert transfers of WMD-related technology and expertise to terrorist groups. And the same Joint Intelligence Committee assessed that were the sanctions against Iraq to be lifted, it would still take Iraq at least five years to acquire enough fissile material to make a nuclear weapon. So it was a very remote and distant prospect at that moment. You had just to take one example from a lot of official papers and minutes that I read in the course of these seven years, but one that stood out for me was that the private secretary to Jeff Hoon, the Secretary of State for Defence, a man called Peter Watkins, a senior uh, Ministry of Defence official, wrote a minute to his minister on the 22nd of July 2002, uh, just before an important ministerial meeting that Hoon was going to, and he described this minute as a distillation of the views of the key advisers to the Defence Secretary, including the Chiefs of Staff, the heads of the military, including the Permanent Undersecretary. And he said that with one exception of one particular official. And his advice was, Saddam Hussein is not currently threatening his neighbours, and his WMD programme is less advanced than, say, Iran's or Libya's. Saddam is being contained. And then you take a minister, Robin Cook, who had been Foreign Secretary, was no longer, was now leader of the House of Commons. But Robin Cook had seen all the intelligence, he was a cabinet minister, he had access to intelligence briefings, so he'd had all the information. When he resigned on the eve of the Iraq war, he said in his resignation speech, Iraq probably has no weapons of mass destruction in the commonly understood sense of the term, namely a credible device capable of being delivered against a strategic city or target. And as it turned out, Cook was right. The decision that we needed to go to war was based on a mistaken threat perception. Now, we live now in a very dangerous world with many potential threats. Assessing these threats accurately, putting them in perspective, weighing them against probability, weighing them against what you know and what you don't know, is absolutely critical to the decisions that we make now on how to defend our national security and indeed how we should play our part in defending global security. So that's my first lesson. Second lesson, defend your bottom line when you are negotiating with your allies. Winston Churchill said at one point during the war, there is only one thing worse than fighting with allies and that is fighting without them. Now during the wartime alliance of the Second World War, there was absolutely no question, at least from 1941 onwards, that the United Kingdom was standing shoulder to shoulder with the United States, and Churchill and Roosevelt developed a pretty close personal friendship. But the history of that alliance, and I'm sure some of you will have studied this, was one of continuous debate and often very, very fierce private argument 
between the Allies about strategy and about the shape of the post-war order. Sometimes Churchill got his way, sometimes he had to give ground, but he always fought his corner, even though he was the less powerful partner, and he fought it very hard. Now, Tony Blair had to decide how he was going to handle American presidents, first Bill Clinton, with whom he had a very close political friendship, and then, rather more awkwardly for him, George Bush, who came from the opposite wing of the American political spectrum. And he judged, and this is an entirely legitimate judgment for a prime minister to make, that the best way to influence the government of the United States was to get alongside it, to stand shoulder to shoulder with it, as he did famously after 9-11, and he received enormous applause in America and got a lot of leverage and a lot of kudos for doing so, so strongly. And what he was hoping to do was to nudge the United States towards the United Kingdom's approach. But actually what happened was the exact reverse. The UK got sucked in to the American approach and not the other way around. In fact, the British and American policies on Iraq were never, in this period, fully aligned. The official policy of the United States from 1998 onwards, when Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act, was actually to work for regime change in Iraq. Regime change was never the official policy of the United Kingdom because, in the view of our law officers, uh, it was an illegitimate policy. Um, you had a critical moment three months after 9-11, end of November, early December 2001, when it became obvious to number 10 that George Bush was starting to put Iraq in the frame. Initially after 9-11, all the emphasis had been on Afghanistan and defeating the Taliban. Uh, but by December, clearly the Americans were setting their sights on Iraq. And Tony Blair had to make a decision as to how he would react to this. And he got in touch with Bush, sent Bush a message, spoke to him on the phone, and essentially agreed that we would work together to deal with Saddam Hussein. What was meant by deal with was not explicit, except that when you look at the detail, it's clear that they were not talking about a military invasion of Iraq at that stage. They had in mind the possibility that there might be an internal uprising that we might support uh, from the outside, possibly using air power. And Tony Blair said, look, we need a clever strategy to do this. And in the months ahead, he started to flesh out this strategy by the time he met George Bush the following April, April 2002, at Bush's ranch at Crawford, uh, they had reached an agreement that what they were trying to do was to have a strategy of coercive diplomacy, have an ultimatum to Iraq, calling on them to allow the weapons inspectors from the UN, who'd been kept out of Iraq by then for four years, to return or else face the consequences. And it's fairly clear that those consequences were not going to be very pleasant. But Blair argued to Bush that to make this policy successful, you needed to do a number of things. And he set out several criteria. That it needed to be multilateral. It should not be the United States alone. You needed to build a coalition. You had a coalition in the global war against terrorism. You needed to carry that approach forward. 
So you needed international support. You needed to make the case to public opinion around the world. He also argued that the Americans had to put pressure on Israel and the Palestinians to move the Middle East peace process forward so that they would not be accused of double standards of putting pressure on Iraq while not putting pressure on Israel and so that you would get greater support within the Middle East region for action against Iraq. Then he stressed the importance of the United Nations and of getting the inspectors back into Iraq and giving them every chance of success, success in disarming Saddam so that you didn't have to go to war. And indeed, it was stated in British uh, government papers that the options for action to eliminate Iraq's WMD through the UN weapons inspectors needed to be exhausted, a very important word in this context. Naturally, he argued that any military action had to be within the framework of international law, and he also argued that it was essential to have a convincing blueprint for a post-Saddam Iraq. These were all extremely good points. If you're developing a strategy, I don't think you can fault any of them. But the question is, how did we get on? And part of the problem was that these criteria were interpreted in different ways within the British government. Tony Blair, as he made clear subsequently, made clear in his evidence the inquiry, was not stating them to the Americans as preconditions for British involvement. He was basically saying, these are conditions for a successful operation. This is what you guys should do. Other people within the British government, basically within the Foreign Office, the Cabinet Office and elsewhere, actually interpreted this as a set of conditions, and they tried to argue to their American counterparts, like the American Secretary of State, the American National Security Advisor, that these were the conditions that would make it possible for the UK to come in, and without them we couldn't. We couldn't join them. Uh, so you had, for example, Jack Straw as Foreign Secretary writing to Tony Blair in July of 2002 and saying, the United States must understand that we are serious about our conditions for UK involvement. You had a cabinet office paper that said that Tony Blair had agreed with President Bush at Crawford that the UK would support military action to bring about regime change, provided that certain conditions were met. And then the conditions were set out in that paper, or the three key ones. Well, we succeeded in one thing. We succeeded in persuading President Bush to take the question of Iraq back to the United Nations Security Council in the autumn of 2002. It wasn't us alone because Colin Powell, the American Secretary of State, was arguing for this. A lot of people in the United States certainly wanted to take it back to the Security Council. Um, but we didn't actually have a common view with the Americans on what we meant by the UN route. The British interpretation of the UN route was we really wanted to give the inspectors a chance. They needed to get out there, which they did in the autumn of 2002. They needed to be given the time to find whatever they were going to find uh, or report that, so far as they could tell, there wasn't a problem. But the American view of the inspections is quite different. They basically saw this as a tripwire for Saddam Hussein. He was going to trip over it. By tripping over it, he was going to provide the casus belli. He was going to provide the excuse for war. And as early as December, the inspectors only went out in, I think, October, they barely started work in November. As early as December of 2002, the Americans came to the view that Saddam had failed to take the final opportunity 
that he'd been given in UN Security Council Resolution 1441 passed in November, uh, when Iraq put in a declaration to the United Nations, a huge document, explaining that it didn't have any weapons of mass destruction at great length, and the Americans said, this is obviously false, the guy's lying, so that's it, he's had his final opportunity. That was not the British view, that was the American view. And from then on, effectively the Americans had decided that they were going for military action sometime around the following February, March, so a timetable of around three months from that point. Um, this meant, effectively, that from then on, you had incompatibility between the American military timetable, which was fixed, because when you deploy a vast army, you can't leave them hanging around indefinitely, and they said, all right, you know, we've got our timetable, and it only moved by a few days. It ended up, as I say, on the 20th of March. And the timetable for UN inspections, which were scheduled to take several months, because Iraq is a very big country, and even with a lot of inspectors, to go all the way around Iraq looking at suspect sites takes a very long time. And this put the British government in an impossible situation, because if the inspectors found something that provided a casus belli, then you could get, uh, I think, a resolution in the United Nations Security Council approving war, and you could go off and take military action. But if they didn't, we were in a situation in which we were not going to get the approval of the UN Security Council, and we were going to have to decide whether or not to go without UN Security Council approval into a military action uh, with Iraq. And the result of this was that on the 20th of March 2003, the military operation started, our troops were there, but none, not one, of the conditions that I described for our strategy had been satisfied. The war at that point was not the last resort. The inspection process had not been exhausted. There was no clear UN Security Council authorization. There was no wide international support. Our own closest allies in the EU and NATO were split. Public opinion in this country was deeply divided. And there was no clear plan, and I'll come on to this in a minute, for what happened after the conflict. Now, obviously, one of the factors that motivated the Prime Minister and the government throughout this negotiation with the Americans was the importance of our overall relationship with this very close, extremely powerful ally. I hesitate to call it a special relationship because that's a term I think that should never be used. I can go into that separately if you want. But it's an enormously important relationship in our defence field, in the intelligence, in economic areas, in just about any area you can think of. And uh, clearly we wish to be supportive as an ally. But if we'd said no, we can't take part in this operation, would that have been the end of the relationship? Well, I think you look at the past history. As I say, we had a lot of disagreements in the Second World War. It didn't bust the relationship. We had a violent disagreement with the United States over Suez. We disagreed over Vietnam. We declined to send our forces to fight with the Americans in Vietnam, the most important question of the hour for them. Margaret Thatcher had a huge disagreement with Ronald Reagan when the United States invaded Grenada. We've had disagreements over Northern Ireland, over Bosnia, over the Arab-Israel process. It's a normal part of the relationship. It doesn't bust the relationship. 
And the reason why it doesn't bust the relationship is this is not a relationship that is just based on sentiment or emotion. It's a relationship of mutual interest. The Americans, the United States of America, has a very strong interest in maintaining that relationship just as we do. And it's a fabric that is strong enough to bear the weight of disagreement. And clearly the fact that France and Germany took a different view from the United States over Iraq did not destroy, cause some friction in their relationship for a short term, but it didn't actually fundamentally change the nature of their relationship with the United States uh, over a period of time. The other question we need to ask is, if we had insisted on the conditions, might it have changed American policy? If instead of saying, yes, but, we'd said, no, unless, we won't come in unless you do X, Y, and Z, might we have influenced the Americans more effectively by that means? Well, you can't prove it. You, you simply don't know. It's a matter of speculation. But, you know, you can reasonably speculate that if... that the Americans were quite keen to have us alongside, we're a pretty important ally, if they'd had to go into it with us saying, actually, we don't agree, that might well have impacted on U.S. Congress, U.S. public opinion. It might have given pause, we don't know, to the United States. It's an unanswerable question. My third lesson is you need to review, debate, and stress test your options. We have procedures for doing this in this country. Within the government, a particularly important role is played by committees of the cabinet. The full cabinet of 20-something people can't sensibly debate policy. So you have committees, small committees, and they are underpinned by committees of officials, and when you're dealing with important strategic questions, the procedure is that somebody explores all the options on paper, they bring all the relevant information together, they put it through the filter of a committee of senior officials, it then goes to ministers who argue over it, and very importantly, if it's a military question, you'll have the chief of the defence staff in there, and you will also have not only the ministers involved in the policy, like the foreign secretary and the defence secretary, but you'll have some heavyweight cabinet ministers who are dealing with other issues, but are experienced individuals who can come in and challenge a policy. And that is how we have tended to stress test our big strategic decisions, uh, certainly over the post-war period. If you read Charles Moore's marvellous biography of Margaret Thatcher, you will see how often she took things to cabinet and cabinet committees, and quite often was defeated there and actually adjusted her policy because of her cabinet committee colleagues, despite the fact that she's seen as a very strong, very dominant prime minister. Uh, I witnessed this process when I worked for John Major as his private secretary, and I sat through cabinet debates on things like Bosnia and Northern Ireland, where people like Michael Heseltine and Kenneth Clark, who were not ministers with departmental portfolios relevant at the time, were challenging the policy, and the policy was the better for it. If you could get it past the challenge, it was a stronger policy. If you couldn't, you adjusted it. And in Tony Blair's early years, he did that too. Between January 1998 and January 1999, there were 21 ministerial discussions on Iraq, seven of them substantive discussions in the full cabinet, five in the cabinet committee <coughs> called DOP, another six in ad hoc ministerial meetings, and so the cabinet decision-making machinery was still operating. But very curiously, from April 1999 to March 2003, the whole period of the run-up to and the decision to go to war in Iraq, there wasn't a single cabinet committee 
discussion about Iraq. Uh, what actually happened was that the decision-making was either unilateral, Tony Blair deciding essentially by himself, or bilateral, Blair having conversation with the Foreign Secretary or the Defence Secretary, or in a small group, often without any minute being taken, never with a proper strategy paper presented to it, not one, uh, and without this filter of an official committee. So you didn't have that stress-testing machinery. And you had the Prime Minister making really important commitments about British foreign and defence policy to the President of the United States in conversations and meetings and a whole series of notes, some of them quite detailed and quite long, setting out his ideas on the strategy without that having gone through the filter of cabinet discussion, which is part of our system, because we are not a presidential system. This is not the United States of America. And when the inquiry looked at this, we came to the conclusion, we identified 11 occasions, I won't bore you by listing them all, but 11 occasions in the um, year and a half before the conflict on which, in our view, there should have been a proper collective discussion and debate about the policy. It should have been exposed to a wider group of senior people who might have challenged it. And the full cabinet barely discussed the question. It had the occasional briefing, but proper cabinet discussion was deferred until too late, effectively until the eve of the conflict, when it was too late, really, for the cabinet to have much influence on it. So did we have options, uh, or would it have been ridiculous having a bureaucratic process of challenge when there was only one course you were going to follow anyway? Well, we did have options. We had this policy of containment that had worked and was still working, uh, in the view of Mr. Peter Watkins, who I quoted earlier, it was still working in the middle of 2002, uh, and it was expensive. It involved a lot of resources, but it was less expensive than going to war, and it effectively meant that Saddam was not able to threaten other states in his region, let alone further afield. We could have continued that. The option of continuing it was not seriously examined. Another option would have been to have insisted that the process of inspections had to be continued through to the end, and the third option, sub-option of that, is that if at the end of that process you were still not satisfied, even if you found no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, you were not satisfied that Saddam uh, uh, was going to play by the rules, you could have sought to oblige him, under the threat of use of force if necessary, to accept the permanent stationing until this question was resolved, of UN and International Atomic Agency monitors in the country to make absolutely sure that they were not developing weapons of mass destruction. And that option was also uh, not considered. Does this mean that there was no challenge at all? No, it doesn't. The policy was challenged. The problem is it wasn't challenged enough and it wasn't challenged <coughs> at the most senior levels, at the levels where you can make an impact on the Prime Minister. You had the Prime Minister's foreign policy advisor, you had Cabinet Office officials, you had the Foreign Secretary, all arguing that he should take a tougher line with the President on the conditions. You had, as I quoted earlier, uh, officials in the Ministry of Defence who were arguing that there was, and I quote, no objective justification for a preemptive attack on Iraq now or in the immediate future, an attack which could have 
unforeseen geopolitical reverberations and is not assured of rapid, complete success. And they were recommending that if the Americans were absolutely determined to go ahead, we should not send ground forces, that we should behave as a good ally, offer what they call niche capabilities, agree to use of our base on Diego Garcia, use of our base in Cyprus, but not deploy our ground troops. You had the Foreign Secretary, who was actually putting the same argument to the Prime Minister at certain points, uh, was arguing uh, in late 2002, early 2003, that we should develop a plan B to postpone action on the grounds that inspections plus the threat of force, in his view, were containing Saddam Hussein. So you did have options, but you just never reached the point where you had a cabinet-level forum in which these differing views could have been put on paper and debated at a suitably heavyweight level. My final lesson is be prepared for the worst-case scenarios. Strategic success is not winning the first battle, it's getting the final outcome right. And this was perceived in the planning. It was argued in the planning stages that the post-conflict failed. Basically, people were fairly confident we'd win the military campaign, as we should, with all the power of the United States, and the fact that Saddam Hussein's army was pretty degraded by this stage. But the post-conflict phase was always seen as the strategically decisive phase, and warnings were given that a badly handled aftermath would make the whole intervention a net failure, a strategic failure. Why did we fail? Well, just in brief, the headlines... Firstly, we underestimated the magnitude of the task. At no time since the Second World War had the United States or the United Kingdom taken part in an opposed military invasion and occupation of a substantial sovereign state. We had been involved in conflicts of different kinds, but we had never done anything on this scale. And the occupation bit, of course, is particularly important in that sentence. A whole load of warnings were ignored about the likelihood of internal conflict, about the risk of a very protracted and costly nation-building exercise, about the difficulty of restoring infrastructure, about the uncertainties we had about the civil administration of Iraq when you took away the Ba'ath Party that had ruled the country for years. We were so preoccupied with the diplomacy and the military preparations that we failed to prepare for the stabilisation. The interdepartmental machinery in Whitehall was very weak. There was no minister put in overall charge. We worked on the assumption in the British government, first of all, we wanted the United Nations to deal with the post-conflict phase. The Americans absolutely refused to do that. Our assumption then was that the American superpower, with all the power at their disposal, would handle this and would get it right. And then we began to get disturbing messages as we got nearer to March 2003 that the United States didn't appear to be prepared at all. And sadly, those messages were accurate. We failed to agree in advance with the United States on how the occupation was going to work, although we were the joint occupying power. We, we thought of having a memorandum of understanding with them that would set out our respective roles, but that fizzled away and never happened. We did not discuss with them what you would do with the Iraqi army. And so, once the occupation happened, they just decided to disband it, and that turned out to be a very bad decision. We did not debate 
how the process of removing the Ba'ath Party from power would work, how many levels of Ba'athist officials would be removed. We had the idea you would take off the top hamper as you had to do, but the way it worked out in the end was that de-Ba'athification swept up officials in the fourth tier, which meant teachers, doctors, junior civil servants who had to belong to the Ba'ath Party to preserve their jobs, but were not exactly fervent supporters of Saddam Hussein. And so suddenly you had uh, hospitals without doctors and schools without teachers. And critically, we did not leave enough troops in the country in order to ensure stabilization. Both we and the Americans <coughs> were very keen to withdraw as quickly as we could. We left forces there that were too small uh, to do the job, and to make it worse, uh, the British then decided in 2004 that from 2006 onwards we would deploy a force to Helmand province in Afghanistan, so we were then dividing our forces in a way we'd promised ourselves we would never do. We ran two uh, medium-scale operations in parallel for three years, which meant that Iraq, our operation in Iraq was short of helicopters, short of intelligence equipment, and so on. The inquiry, just to reach a conclusion on this, identified four elements <coughs> that we felt are fundamental to any undertaking of this kind. The best possible appreciation of the theatre of operations, that was lacking. A hard-headed assessment of the risks, that never happened. Realistic and, if necessary, limited objectives. Well, I quoted the objectives at the beginning, they were unbelievably overambitious. And allocate the necessary resources, both military and civilian. We were totally unprepared on the civilian side and we allocated too few on the military side, not for the campaign, but for the post-conflict. So to conclude, what are the lessons for today? This was a policy made in Washington based on two false premises. The premise that Saddam was a threat, and the premise that regime change would be welcomed in Iraq, would take place in a relatively benign environment, and that Iraq could then fairly rapidly become a democratic, peaceful, prosperous <coughs> exemplar for the whole Middle East region. And if you look back in the writings of some of the advocates of this operation long before it happened in the United States, they were putting forward that thesis. Here was a golden opportunity. We, the British, imported this approach top-down into the UK system without our usual checks and balances working sufficiently the assessment, the scrutiny, the challenge, the things I've talked about. So is this relevant today? Well, when we intervened in Libya to help topple Gaddafi, and when we decided that we would try to help topple Assad in Syria, had we worked out how we would stabilize those countries afterwards? Had we asked ourselves the question, what will happen? Who is going to run them? How is it going to work? Were we prepared for that? When the European Union sided with the Euromaidan in Ukraine, had it calculated Russia's likely reactions? Had it developed a strategy to make a success of Ukraine? Two years on, when you look at Ukraine, is this a success story? Indeed, does the European Union even have a Ukraine strategy to this day? Or is it simply uh, wishing and hoping and keeping Ukraine on life support? When the British government decided in 2013 to offer an in-out referendum on EU membership, had the Cabinet held a series of meetings to assess the pros and cons 
and to work out the possible consequences of this massively important strategic decision, possibly the most important strategic decision taken in this country since the Second World War? Did the government prepare for the scenario of a vote to leave? As you look at what we're told about government policy now, can we see any signs of that? Now, that may be a little unfair. Strategic decision-making is a very, very difficult process for democratic governments. Difficult because they are bound by very short four- or five-year electoral cycles. Strategy tends to take longer than four or five years to reach fulfillment. Difficult because increasingly we are working with polarized and fragmented political parties. One of the reasons why uh, the Northern Ireland peace process was a success was because it was a bipartisan policy uh, that was supported by the Labour Party in opposition when the Conservatives <coughs> were in government and vice versa. And so it could operate beyond the electoral cycle. Uh, a particular difficulty now is the need to react to the 24-hour news cycle. Governments are expected to make instant decisions. That doesn't give them mature time for reflection. They get locked into positions very, very early on because of the pressure of the news cycle. And then there's the sheer volume of work, which is almost impossible to describe unless you've seen it from the inside. The pressure on our decision makers, <coughs> particularly on our Prime Minister, allows far too little time for the sort of strategic thought I've been uh, talking about. So I have a lot of sympathy for the people who bear the responsibility. We need to find a way of distinguishing between tactical and operational decisions on the one hand and the really big strategic questions which will have long-term consequences. And we have to make time for the proper consideration of the latter. We need to strike a balance between having decisive leadership, which we want, and weighing options carefully without getting bogged down in some interminable bureaucratic process of committees and papers and so on. And if I go back to Laurie Friedman and the bit I quoted at the beginning, are we now thinking about our actions in advance in the light of our goals and our capacities? And when I look at the situation we face today, I'm not 100% sure that we're getting it right. Thank you very much. Let me say I'm speaking in a personal capacity as someone who's reported from there and run teams of reporters, though the things that uh, Roderick was discussing so well, describing so well, of why people make bad decisions um, are utterly relevant to the Institute for Government, which indeed looks at just that. Um, I'm going to say um, uh, three, um, three things. One is uh, why this matters and why the Iraq uh, story matters. One is my take on uh, just a few things under that heading, my take on what happened, what went wrong, and then uh, a few things under the heading of, of effects of it and, uh, and the lessons. But let me just start by saying, I mean, well, I mean, congratulations to Roderick and the panel and, for, you know, the, all the brickbats that piled up over the years and uh, with increasing frustration and, and so on, but they have done a public service of spelling out uh, at length, if I can put it that way, uh, what went wrong. Um, and it is, um, in, my, in my view, they got the balance right, um, and the key balance within that being the blame apportioned to politicians uh, versus military, and uh, the heavy thump of that coming down on the politician side. 
Um, let me say, all right, let me get, go on to why this matters. Um, it matters in so many ways that, 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 this, that Iraq went as badly wrong as it did. It was one of the things that has shaken public trust within Western democracies about leaders. In fact, two, two wars that went wrong, if I can use understatement on that, have, you know, have really contributed, it seems to me, to public mistrust of, of elites. Uh, and, the, and then you add in the financial crisis to that. Um, matters of trust, matters for the West's standing in the world, matters enormously for this kind of project of, you know, saying that we defend uh, liberal democracy and we defend the values that that represents, even if we're not trying to export it as we were in, in Iraq. Uh, it matters um, that that has been set back on its heels. It matters for our Middle East policy, where both Britain and America have really chosen uh, to come out and the extreme disinclination to get involved uh, in any significant way at the moment. Um, so it matters in all kinds of ways. And even above that, I would just say it is so interesting. The, the, the story of how this went wrong, almost un, just under the feeling of it going wrong, under the fingers of the officials and the military uh, personnel who were involved at the time. And I remember almost the week-by-week week feeling of deterioration. I remember flying into Baghdad at, at one point, and John Soares then went on to run MI6. So he was the kind of um, holding ambassador there. Come in, come in, it's absolutely fine. Send your flak jackets on to Turkey. Uh, all fine in, in Baghdad. And just two weeks later, that would have been unthinkable. I was talking before this to a colleague of mine who ran the Baghdad Bureau for the Times, which was the only UK newspaper that kept a Baghdad bureau all the way through. And he was kidnapped in Fallujah um, near the beginning of, of the war, released two days later. He said if it had been four weeks later, he would have been dead. That was when everyone uh, began to be killed. I remember two British lightly armoured vehicles standing on the side of a crowd of tens of thousands roiling away in Basra, looking as if they were, I think, kidding themselves. They were keeping the peace, not realising at that point that the peace was being kept by Ayatollah Sistani. And at the point when it no longer suited Ayatollah Sistani to have the peace kept, it all went up and we were deluding ourselves about it. It is so interesting, the series of decisions and delusions that went into it, that it is absolutely worth the study uh, that Chilcott has put into it. Right, some things about um, what went wrong, my, my take on this. First, on the intelligence, endless amounts written about WMD and so on. I kind of agree with the way Roderick has presented it, that this isn't the main point. Um, Intelligence makes lots of mistakes. It gets lots, lots wrong. It's, if you like, scraps off a rich man's table. If you look at the, some of the big misses of Western intelligence, famously failing to see that the Soviet Union was coming down, but really more recently um, that Russia was moving its um, forces into the, the coast of Syria, been described to me by a British cabinet minister as the biggest uh, miss of in Western intelligence since WMD. Americans didn't seem to know. We didn't know. Happened really suddenly. Intelligence misses lots of things. It gets lots wrong. And there was reason to think, as Chilcott uh, has, has, has written, that Saddam was up to something in the early 1990s. My first job as a reporter at the Financial Times was actually to sit in the Holiday Inn in Kuwait and watch UN weapons inspectors dragging bits of Saddam's nuclear weapons program out of the desert. And there were many bits. They didn't all fit together. He was trying everything going of magnets and gas and whatever. But he was certainly trying at that point. And 
you know, then, then obviously he got rid of it. That you still run into foreign office officials saying, yeah, maybe, maybe the chemical weapons, which we knew he had, maybe they're going to turn up in Syria. You know, the, 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 there's a lot written about uh, about that, about it getting it being got wrong, and it was a big a, a big mistake. The security services are still tormenting themselves about it. How do they challenge more? But the fact is, intelligence is often wrong. Um, the question is how politicians particularly use it and the weight that was put on it at that point. And I think Roderick's and Chilcott's analysis of the weight that was put on it, the absolutely uh, phony link with 9-11, um, and then the, the, the weight that it was, it, it, you know, the way it was used is the point, more than the fact that uh, intelligence gets stuff wrong. It often does. Um, U.S. relations, absolutely, I think that Chilcott has caught the uh, tugging at the, the American sleeve sort of quality of the British relationship. Absolutely, I would ban the word special relationship. You never hear them in Washington anyway, outside the gardens of the British embassy. Um, on checks and balances, whether they exist under our parliamentary prime ministerial system, I think there is a lot to be written on that. And pushing back on Blair's sofa government doesn't quite, to me, capture uh, the dangers that that do um, persist in our system. And if you think we've had not just Iraq, but then we've had David Cameron taking the country into the momentous decision uh, that he did of the EU referendum with remarkably little little discussion. You know, those, those, those weaknesses, if you like, some would call them strengths, um, particularly the Prime Minister, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the power that the British system gives the Prime Minister remains. So does uh, the propensity to make other mistakes. To me, actually, the, the British mistake of going into Helmand province um, is a worse one. It's a stupider one. We took on that responsibility very casually. We took on, at the same time, uh, responsibility for uh, uh, curbing the drugs trade in Afghanistan, um, what, other countries accepted things like you know, running courts. We had to try and um, we, we, we elected to take on uh, ridding Afghanistan of drugs, the main crop in the south, um, remarkably casually and with a kind of can-do British uh, uh, spirit in the military. And to me, that, that the responsibility for that one falls thumpingly on the senior layers of the military uh, in contrast to the, the Iraq decision. So I think that, that one's worse, but it doesn't have the resonance that Iraq does, partly because it had the um, support, the international support that came with um, the support for America over, over 9-11. Let's come on to lessons and the, and the effects of all this. Um, it's hit hard at our confidence in nation building and our theories of development. Um, in a, I guess, bleakly, you could say, a useful way. We don't have those fantasies of nation building in the way that we did. Um, but it possibly has almost overshot countries thinking, oh, we really don't want to do anything in, in, in the way um, of post-conflict help. And I think the lessons are instead that it takes a long, long, long time. And even after decades, no one gets the, the police right. Um, the... Um, the uh, um, one of the lessons I think we, we can see from that is that conflict breeds conflict. I remember a senior foreign official saying in a, in a plane flying back from Iraq one night, he's saying, you know, we, we just have to stop this um, 
a thing where, where you know we're just shoot, we're shooting people in, in in Baghdad. We're creating with each shot, you know, ten more enemies. It just is not going to work. The, we we have to if the violence doesn't come down, uh, the rate at which we're creating more opposition uh, is going to get just get out of control. And the fact that you need to get into uh, talks as soon as you can to keep the violence down is is one of the enduring lessons. It's reminded us, and particularly the United States, that democracy is quite a fragile uh, thing, and it doesn't mean, what it absolutely crucially can't mean, is majoritarianism, the rule of the majority. And uh, that's what we got in, in Iraq. And the again, the casualness with which America thought that its own intricate, almost unique set of, of, of checks and balances to protect minorities, its constitutional creation, could be exported to another country, um, is, is kind of breathtaking looking back. But um, we can see in many countries that majority rule is a pretty terrifying thing, uh, certainly if you're in the minority, and that's what Iraq is still struggling with. And you know, many countries or many you know, kind of tribes in that area see it as a winner-takes-all. Our side's in, we better annihilate the other side just in case they try and get back. And again, that has stayed as a, a very painful lesson. I had a lot of, lot of knock-on, uh, very, very painful points. I think it took attention not just away from Afghanistan, but actually away from the EU. I, again, remember on one of these Iraq flights and the Foreign Office officials, and I don't mean to caricature or tease it, but all the adrenaline was with them, of sorting, flying around with flak jackets and sorting out uh, these troubled places. And I said, what happened to all your neat colleagues in nice suits going on the Eurostar to Brussels? And they off there. Yeah. Um, it was the kind of boring wing of, of the Foreign Office, if you like. Well, actually, uh, it would have helped if more British attention had been on the EU in those very, very difficult years, actually, for the, uh, for the EU. Um, and just co coming then finally to a, a, um, a final point, what does it say about um, lessons? I mean, do we learn lessons in these things? Well, you can pull together lessons, um, some of these things are a catastrophe of process, if I can put it that way, of um, uh, um, models and theories followed, things, people not challenged at the right point. But I guess the most enduring lesson of it is, is just the uh, very vivid spectacle that things go very badly wrong and that they can go wrong. Um, and therefore, the lesson, the warning, that people should take more uh, take more care than they did in the past. I don't mean to be cynical, and I'm not, uh, uh, about this. People do learn lessons, um, but not when it doesn't suit them, and it doesn't suit people to change some of the processes and to give up some of the power that exists in our system for people at the top of the pile to make decisions on their own without checks and balances. And when you get down to it, that, that, that doesn't yield very quickly. So I guess the, the use of Iraq, looking back, and indeed the use of Chilcot, is just spelling out just what the effects are when something does go badly wrong, as it absolutely can. Thank you.